this really delicate balance between knowing your product from like a pure intuitive sense what the right thing to do is and then using data to support those things. If you're in a growth stage company, there's things happening all over the place. There's lots of distractions. You can get lost in your own world. Rising above it and putting yourself back in that customer seat is such a superpower. In the early stages, you might not want to hire someone dedicated to growth until you have some sort of repeatability demonstrated. The industry is not staying static in terms of like, what do you need to make these decisions and how can you grow? I always like the notion you're like a mad scientist. You're mixing in a beaker of like all your different variables. You want to keep some constraints. You want to keep some variables the same, a little bit more of this, and you want to see how it reacts. Hi, I'm Nima Gardide. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Paramil. And this is the hypergrowth experience. As companies grow, the challenges aren't just limited to finding your customers and acquiring them. The company needs to learn how to build the right processes to continue its trajectory. And the growth teams need to learn how to tap into company resources to continue scaling. In our second episode, I chat with Amy Sun, early Uber growth member, ex-partner at Sequoia, and Jonathan Metric, ex-CMO of Policy Genius and Chief Growth Officer at Portage Ventures about the challenges of managing growth at fast growth companies. Both have been operators and recently been on the venture capital side of startups, giving them a multidimensional perspective. We cover important topics like how to manage up effectively, how to work with product and engineering, and how to think about channel composition as you scale. And what do the best companies look like from the outside in? We seldom discuss these topics in our community, so join in for a deep dive with Amy and Jonathan. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Sun. I am currently the founder of a new startup called Daylight. We're still sort of in stealth mode, I guess. I'm prior to starting my own company. I spent three years as an investor on the growth stage side at Sequoia Capital. And prior to that, I was in growth marketing at Uber in the early days, transitioned to product management, and also spent uh, some time in product management at Facebook. And one factoid about myself uh, is that for the last uh, 10 or so months, I've been a vagabond uh, and just driving across the country, like living in various places from Boston to North Carolina to New Orleans, and I'm currently in Austin. Very cool. That's going to be a tough one to follow on, Amy. My name is Jonathan Metric. Uh, I'm the Chief Growth Officer at Portage Ventures, which is a fintech-focused VC. Some of the, por- the companies in our portfolio is Wellsimple, Albert based out of LA, Clark out of, out of uh, Germany, and InsureTech out of Germany. Prior to this role, so I'm kind of an, a growth advisor. I advise on marketing growth with our portfolio companies. Prior to this, I was the CMO of Policy Genius for three years, helping that business scale up 10x over the past three years in New York. Kind of have a, a deep experience in the marketing side across startups, Procter & Gamble. I used to work at Live Nation Entertainment for a while in the entertainment sector, but all things related to marketing and most recently in the startup space. An interesting factoid about me, prior to you know, the pandemic, we can actually do interesting experiences and travel a bit. I would highly recommend if anyone ever goes to Tokyo, there's an experience you can do where you can dress up and get in a go-kart and drive around the streets of Tokyo as Super Mario. And I would highly recommend it. It's very cool. People stop on the streets to take photos of you. If you're ever in Tokyo out of the pandemic, you should check that out. That's hilarious. What's funny is I actually... I I don't know if this is a service, but in New York, I was on the pier playing volleyball a couple months ago when it was warm out. And there was a race going on around our field with a bunch of people in Mario Kart outfits. Um, <laughs> it was hilarious. We spent like 30 minutes just watching them and, and, and making bets on who's going to win. Um, it's amazing. 
Cool. Well, thanks for, for doing this, guys. I think um, what was really interesting out of the pre-event interview when we started chatting was uh, I think both of you have seen a couple of brands go from like very early to massive scale. And one of the things that always make, makes me curious is you know, there are some things that you do in the early days that will work for a while and then they stop working at some point. And I think we've talked about how like even on this show that the good, really strong brands essentially have one channel in, in the first while, like first few years, and then they just double down that channel to, to become massive companies. But I wanted to sort of put it out there is like, what are the different stages in your mind? Like if there are there frameworks of like, all right, maybe pre-product market fit, this is what I do, post-product market fit, this is what I do. Or like, what are the, the different stages where you think it starts to really shift your mindset when you're trying to grow, grow a product? I mean, I, yeah, I can start. I think in the earliest stages, and, and I do it more so kind of like by funding structures. So like in the pre-seed stage or seed stage, a lot about trying to find product market fit, right? And so a lot of the companies I work with in, in our portfolio, it's being scrappy, right? Generalists, trying a bunch of things, trying not to invest too much in a certain channel for a certain experience until you know that that works well, that you, you, know, you can get in front of customers and that they're actually going to buy your product, you know, that they're you know, valuable customers and they actually might tell their friends and refer you. There's a lot of kind of scrappy experimentation in the very, very early stages that are critical to establish product market fit and you know, really hone in who are you for who and what value you're bringing for them. And I think as you start to scale up, you get a bit more of a, an idea of that. You're getting into series A and you're getting into series B. That's where you get a little bit more into the specialties, right? And you carve out, okay, actually one of our best channels for acquisition is going to be Facebook or it's going to be podcasts. And you know you start to bring in expertise in that area and start to establish best class in that area, procedures, processes, you know, building a bit of a moat for yourself. But I think those are kind of some of the differences I see in the really early days is investment, keeping nimble. And then as you get bigger, doubling down on what works and bringing in specialists and expertise to, to expand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that really resonates actually with my own experience uh, at Uber. So just when I joined Uber, UberX was just launching. And that was when the growth team was formed because it was like, oh, we need actual some growth expertise to help with this like mass scale behavior change problem of you all of a sudden you need to try to convince, you know, millions of people across the world to like quit their jobs and like drive strangers around full time. And that's like a completely <laughs> legitimate thing to do. And and prior to the growth team being established, so when I first joined, everything was like that scrappy hustler mentality. Like people were just like calling up limo companies. Literally something that I did in the early days is we would go to the airport and like knock on the windows of like black car drivers and be like, Hey, like here's a card, work at Uber, you should sign up for this thing. And we just like hustle drivers. But the yeah. thing was interesting because you got real like user feedback in addition to like onboarding these drivers literally one by one. And so you got a sense of like their needs, what they do, where they hang out, what would convince them to like take that leap and uh, start driving on your platform. And so that was like really valuable, but it was not scalable, right? You can't Mm -hmm. onboard a million drivers through this process. And so that was when to try to automate things and like, how can you make this more efficient? How can you reach people without having to deploy a bunch of like interns into malls and try to like scale people onto the platform? And like a lot of referral loops were built. So I think referrals in the early days can be super valuable. And, mm-hmm. and Uber actually had zero budget dedicated to 
acquisition in the in the beginning. And so things like trying to get drivers to refer each other, trying to get riders to refer drivers, doing some promo code stuff where you gave away free rides or like credits on the driver's side were super valuable. And then when you're like, oh wow, we really we're really constrained by supply. We need to like turn this up 10x or 100x. Uh, that's when started doing some performance marketing channels, which is uh, when I first joined. Yeah, and and uh, <laughs> the first channel that I actually worked on, which I actually talked to Nima on, was in an in-person panel. Yeah. Years ago, like four years ago, was uh, Craigslist. It's a super good channel uh, for Uber, and it was also like very inexpensive, right? There was like $25 a post. And I, I literally spent my first like week at Uber, like sitting in a closet, waking up at five o'clock in the morning and posting to Craigslist for like, <laughs> <laughs> like five or six hours straight, like manually, right? And then you're like, oh, wow, this is actually working. We're tracking it. We have some systems that, and then turn up performance for more uh, dollars in or scale to similar channels. And I think as the company grew larger, performance was a huge channel for drivers but at there's a certain point where it's no longer really efficient to keep acquiring that like next incremental new customer and you have to think about like engagement and crm and like you already have this huge group of people that have signed up or have driven at some point like how can we it's much more effective to like re-engage that existing base. And then mm-hmm. later on in the company's lifespan, when it's like the household name, then like brand becomes super, super important. Like how do you become that first choice? But like switching from that performance mentality out of the, into like a more engagement brand mentality was super, super hard. Cause the whole organization was like, and the whole data system was like set up to think about what is the in- cost of this next incremental driver yeah. or rider on the platform or trip. And it's like the whole That's team has like shift. Mindset. Super interesting. Right. Cause like basically if you become a household name, you no longer have a performance problem. A performance problem is like people who've never heard of us, please, this is, this is what we're doing. And then come and use our product. Mm-hmm. Where then, then you shift to a point where you're like, everybody knows about Uber. There is no human that doesn't know about it. So now it's around like, okay, can we create integrity around the brand and then mm-hmm. be on top of mind? So then they use us over Lyft or whatever in the markets that they're in. It makes so much sense at the later stages, yeah. Yeah, and I think the interesting piece here, Amy, you teed this up, is who are the folks that are actually best suited for that work, right? They're often very different, right? The folks who are scrappy and hackers want to break the system, want to find a hack, they want to try something new, and if it doesn't work, that's okay. But as you become a household brand, you know, having worked at Procter in the early days of my career, you actually had more to lose by taking a risk with a brand like Tide that everyone knows that's buying, that has high loyalty, than to win by some hack or some growth hack. And that's a very different use case and how you deploy marketing. And the folks that want to work on those sorts of brands are very different, right? And I think as you transition up from stages, sometimes those folks may, may grow with you and many times they might not. And I think it depends on what, what's needed in the business at that time. But I think one of the major inflection points, and Amy, you, you mentioned that a little bit too, is as you start deploying incremental amounts of capital, right? So it's kind of like if your budget's low and you're super scrappy, the risk is low of making a mistake or trying a different pieces, that's okay. But if you're deploying hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars into a channel, kind of not really knowing what you're doing, you're just kind of being scrappy. Yeah, I, I wonder. So, sorry, go on, Amy. Go oh, I'm just gonna completely agree. And and I, I yeah. was just gonna mention, like, when I joined Uber, I had a year and a half of experience in something that was like completely not related. I was in product marketing at Microsoft, working on Windows, and and so like, the, and that was like the kind of person was like on the team was someone that was like super young, super hungry, 
shallow knowledge in a bunch of different things. So you can go and like run a quick test, understand if something works. And then at some point, you're, I'm like, I am currently like creating SEM campaigns. I know nothing about like AdWords, non-branded search keywords. Once you know what works, you can hire someone that's like best in class search for what you need, best in class for like video advertising or something, uh, mm-hmm. and then like bring those folks in. Um, but and then the scrappy folk can like stay on and keep testing stuff. But but that is an interesting transition as well. Like from a career perspective, I was like, whoa, I'm like, I don't have that deep knowledge. What is the next yeah. step? It's interesting because I think basically the way I think about it is there's like the exploratory stage mm-hmm. and then there's the exploit t- stage where you're like, okay, you figured out one of the channels and then now you want to master that channel. There's a totally different persona and or team <laughs> that is required to master one of these channels. Like I, I, I joke around with folks that hire us a lot. We're like, oh yeah, you want to master paid. Look at the composition of our team. We have engineers, we have like designers, videographers, cinematographers, like illustrators. Uh, in order to like succeed at one channel to like scale it up, you have like a totally different set of skill sets that you need to tap into. It's sometimes like actually scary when they realize, oh, if, if we want to go from like the 50K a month to a million a month on this channel, it takes a whole team to do it. And it's like, it's not an easy thing. The thing that uh, came up around referrals, Amy, was mm-hmm. I, I was surprised that you mentioned that they didn't have a budget for it because that is budget, right? When you're, when you're giving away money. Mm-hmm. That is like, how did you guys think about CAC in that scenario? Was that like baked in? And then when you started doing performance, were you thinking about, oh yeah, we're getting these drivers and then they have like a, a K factor on top of that. And then we lose money this much when they refer new, new drivers in. Like, how would you do the accounting there? That seems like pretty complex, right? Yeah, the referral stuff was a bit complex. And honestly, like we were not super scientific about it. <laughs> and, you know, we had some venture capital fund. A lot Behind the curtain. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but, uh, but like in terms of, there was a lot of, oh, like if someone's coming in through a referral channel, like what's the likelihood that they stay on to take another trip, another uh, five trips, another 10 trips. And referrals were actually a super sticky channel. So like the drivers that signed up, and the riders as well who signed up uh, via referral attended to have a h- much higher LTV than someone who, you know, just signed up direct or, or so through, through a different channel. And I think it's because they have a network of friends around them who are mm-hmm. also doing the same thing, right? They're people to like guide them um, through the process. It was like give a ride, get a ride. And then on the driver's side, it was a like a varying bonus amount for the drivers like where the driver who referred would get some and then the the new driver that signed up also got some and in terms of like thinking about the like ltv like hack math as long as they were like retentive to a certain degree uh, and they didn't they didn't just drop off like immediately there was a point where it like came back right so uh, that was Mm -hmm. how how it was thought about and yeah and i think the the budget wise that was actually how we initially pitched please let us do a little bit of paid marketing because we are already spending this much per rider and per driver on this like referral program. Like why don't we just, we can keep that as like the max budget that we would uh, allocate to something. Oh, like, interesting. Uh, You're like, this is our new CAC. We're just going to go and see if we can get the same CAC yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. So it was kind of crazy. So this is like Uber in 20, early 2014. So it's like already unicorn company kind of darling of Silicon Valley never had run branded SEM campaigns. So like 
when you searched Uber, someone else's ad would like come up. Oh, I Uber remember wasn't... running ads towards Uber actually because I was making you money. Them. <laughs> you were one of them. You were one I of them. Were, totally like, he was yeah. driving up your cack. <laughs> oh my like, no, we would query these accounts and like they'd be like, oh my god, some of these writer accounts have like thousands of dollars of credits. And uh, <laughs> Because I kept the up below I realized like, yeah, so I was basically doing a couple hundred bucks at a time. I did it with Airbnb too, because like these stocks are blowing up. People are searching their brand name. All you have to do is throw in your referral. I mean, I think everyone has like systems against this now. But yeah. all you have to do is throw in your referral link as the landing page and boom, you make money. Uh, or like yeah. you can ride around for free afterwards. Yeah. Um, so definitely funny. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think that that point, you know, Amy, we we were discussing a little earlier around kind of like that referral metric, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of these big barometers in the earlier stages of how well do you have product market fit, right? In the sense of are you able to actually, you know, are folks using your product? They like it so much mm-hmm. that they then continue to use it. That's the first basis of it. Mm-hmm. But then, are they willing to refer a friend, and to what degree, right? And I think with referrals, you know, on the VC side of things, we we evaluate that a lot. Like, what is your referral coefficient, right? And mm-hmm. folks who are referred are you know probably higher conversion version, probably lower churn. And, you know, cause they're doing the selling for you. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. a really interesting metric. Not enough businesses, I think really try to catalyze and take advantage of their referrals. Right. And I think it's the folks who love your brand are, there's no better person to sell it and promote mm-hmm. it than them. And I think Uber is you know best in class example of that. A few others, of course, but that's a really untapped channel. I think with a lot of, a lot of folks. Yeah, I guess. The, and the thing that I think was it's probably common knowledge now, but was very enlightening at the time is that the give part is super, super important for referrals. But like you're mm-hmm. actually giving your friend something and it, Uber tested a bunch of different variations. And even the like give a friend a free ride and you get nothing like people are still willing to share because they're actually more excited because the product market fit was so good. It was like, Hey, like you need to try out this new service here. Let me give you this free ride and like, you can try it out, which is really interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. That's like, it's like the product market fit is so good. <laughs> I'm willing to market your product for you for free in order for my friends to win something. Cause you seem cool. cool. Like you seem like yeah. you're like, look, I'm going to get us a black car. It's going to be really oh, yeah. cool. I remember that. <laughs> I was like, Social capital. I was like 18 or 19 when yeah. Uber launched in Toronto, Canada, where I lived at the time. I think Jonathan, you're there right now, right? That's um, right. And the black cars were just cool. Like, who, what 18-year-old yeah. is riding black cars? Nobody, right? But I had Nima like three rides. <laughs> Nima was, for sure. And I felt like, you know, on top of the world, like, looking at me at 18, like, you know, living the black car yeah. life. Meanwhile, in my, like, late 20s, there's no way I would order a black car on yeah. Uber. But, <laughs> but like, same, like, actually, for me personally, I loved Gossip Girl. And like in Gossip Girl, they rode yeah, these like too. town cars around New yeah, York. Me too. But like, if you can tap there. into that like human psychology of it with your product, there's something interesting there. Yeah. Whether that's like looking cool with your friends or like something like that. On the topic yeah, of referrals, though, I think it's really interesting as well, like around like value and perceived value, right? And I think some of the most viral referral pieces I've seen are things, you know, like Robin Hood giving away a free stock. What is the value of that? They're not giving like a Tesla stock. You might be getting a stock at, you know, Joe's coffee company that costs five bucks, but the sound of we're going to give you a free stock or a free ride sounds way better than, Oh, well that ride's probably $15 or that stock is $8. You know, it's kind of perceived value. And I think, you know, where brands have really done well is through leveraging mechanisms like that versus, Hey, here's $20 Amazon cash. Right, because people have a lot more of a sense of what what that's worth. 
Totally. I think that, that that's what's an interesting thing too in general in referrals is it doesn't work just because you put it in there, right? Like it only works when you have level of product market fit to begin with. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to like gain something by doing it. And that gain thing could be so many things. One, it could, could be just social value, which seems like Uber had it at some point where I'm cool by having access to Uber. So I'm going to give you access to Uber and that that is intrinsic value for me to do it. So like, I'm going to go do it. I think Clubhouse did a great job mm-hmm. at this, right? For a while. And I don't know, maybe if you're like not into deep tech, you don't know what Clubhouse is, but it's just like a new social network. And having a Clubhouse invite for a while was like the cool thing to have in the Valley. And so like they had to create this sort of like social dynamic. We're giving it up, made, made a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think this is like an interesting leeway because you both have been in growth, but you also been both in venture. We talked about this in the pre-interview is I think what, one thing that VCs do later on in the stage of a company, let's say you've gone through the seed stage, you've done series A, you found like one of these channels that works super well for you. And maybe in like the context of Uber, it would have been referrals. In the context of like Dropbox, it would have been referrals too, right? Maybe booking.com would have been search advertising, whatever it is. And I hear this a lot because what happens is founders come to us and say, hey, I had a board meeting and my VCs are like, you got to diversify your channels. Right now, 80% of your traffic is coming from one or two of these channels. You got to do more. That's usually when I, when I hear that, I get pretty upset because it's just the wrong advice, in my opinion. But I wanted to first, I mean, I already biased you guys. But yeah, what do you guys think about that? Because I, I think that's not the right call, but I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. Because you've obviously been on the other side where you've been in board meetings and stuff. And maybe you're now giving advice and maybe it's the same advice. Who knows? But um, love to hear what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, I think from an investor perspective, right? Like putting yourself in their shoes for a second. If they're bringing on, you know, a new investor for a new round, they've given you, you know, $100 million, $50 million, whatever that is, they're looking at their return and they're looking to diversify the risk of that return in, in theory, right? So if you've got a super defensible moat that you own from a channel perspective, that's, that's potentially interesting, right? So SEO is an example, kind of like the nerd wallets and the credit karmas of the world building a huge moat around SEO and organic search. That's something that I think is really interesting and defensible. But if you've built it around, say, Facebook or Google, and the platform continues to allow other folks to just come in and bid over you, continue to, to splash money in that, you know, folks want to potentially then diversify you know, the risk of, okay, well, if 80% of your lead volume is coming in from one channel, and other people can come and outbid you, and you're eventually going to go up against an incumbent that probably has more money than you, how do we think about that? And so I think that's where a lot of these questions of, okay, well, what else... What other channels can we bring in the mix? And I think it's it's natural for folks to want to diversify the risk. Because when you think about it, VCs have a portfolio of companies. They don't just invest in one. They invest in a bunch. Because one will do well, but a few others won't. And so they're probably employing a similar kind of logic. But that is a challenge. You know, I've been in those meetings uh, on the board you know, and the kind of operating company side when the board members are like, hey, there's two big channels you got, but what about all these other ones? And you're like, well, those don't necessarily work for us. And we've got really strong efficiencies here. So it is a balancing act. And I think on my side, it's you probably have to have one or two lead channels that you can disproportionately win in that are kind of your champion channels, maybe one or two other testing, but you don't want to be spread too thin. But at the same token, I've been in scenarios where, you know, a ton of Facebook brands that were built off of Facebook, 80% of the lead volume was there. The Facebook algo changed, CPMs went up, and their economics went upside down. So you don't want to be in that scenario either. I would agree with that as well. And and it's like, uh, I think there's most investors have had one or two examples that have led a really, (laughs) like a deep impact on them. 
oh, I think there are a lot of the companies built off of SEO when Google changed the ranking. It just like, same thing. The business and unit economics no longer really work. Uh, and so the way I, you know, would think about it, the way as a growth marketer as well as an investor is just like, how has the performance on that channel looked over time? Like, have you have your CPAs over the last few years been really steady? Uh, are you actually diversifying within that channel, right? Because like social is like so big, right? And even like Facebook itself is so big. Are you able to find new ad, like new targeting groups and um, new tactics that work really well? And also like, what's the age of the channel? Is it you're a first mover on something like Snap. And as a result, there's not that many advertisers in the platform yet. So you're able to get really high returns. Or like, is it like a channel that's already at maturity, I would say. Because like, if you're an early mover and then Snap ads opens to everyone, it just, the CPAs are going to go up across the board. So like, how do you think about it? And also mm-hmm. I would differentiate the way that investors think about like paid acquisition channels, which is like a lot of Facebook and uh, Twitter and Google and things like that versus the organic channels. One thing that really like annoyed me as an investor is people would always ask, oh, what percentage of your traffic is organic? And it's like, what do you mean by that? Do you mean unattributed? Yeah. Do yeah. you mean like PR? Yeah. Like, you know, you should be able to attribute most things. And like, it depends if you're using an click attribution model, it, it's going to look wildly different. So you're not really comparing apples to apples, but that's something that I hear investors ask a lot. And the, th- the sort of question behind the question is, are people organically telling their friends about mm-hmm. the uh, company because yeah. they love it? I think that seems to be the much more important thing is can you maintain this level of spend, let's say, um, on one of these channels, maybe you're doing search or paid, and then rely on the fact that you have product market fit so then people will talk about your product. Because the problem actually is not with paid acquisition being sustainable. The way these algorithms work, it's pretty sustainable if you want to continue to spend the same amount you're spending for years to come. It's problematic when you have to triple and double your spend every year. That's mm-hmm. when it's problematic. So what what... I give this advice to a lot is basically if you do have one of these channels that's working, can you master it? And I like the the way you put it, Amy, is are you discovering new ways to get gains in the channel constantly every couple of months where you're like, actually, you're not ballooning over time. Like if your graph, your CAC is looking like this, but it's going up over time in the, in the last like 12 or 18 months on a channel, that may be bad news. But if you're maintaining your CAC or even maybe <coughs> getting efficiencies, maybe it's it's a really good good one to stick with. And I don't know, I, this is the, the reason I, I think it's bad advice um, is because if you study some of these like bigger companies like Dropbox, Uber, Booking.com, TripAdvisor, NerdWallet, all these like sort of unicorn-esque companies, what they had done is they had matched their business model to one of these channels such that they had basically unbeatable systems for that, right? So like mm-hmm. Dropbox did a great job with their referral system. In fact, it was the main way they grew for the first five or six years. And I think they did this like Samsung deal where the Dropbox app was on every Android installation after a while. And that's when they got their sort of second big growth growth thing. But that's like a partnership thing. If you look at like booking.com, they're just incredible at search. There was like 50 mm-hmm. people inside of Google who's in charge of the paid growth that booking.com does. That's how insane they are with, with their ads yeah. in there, right? So. I would I would totally agree with that. And I think that gets back to our point earlier, though, of kind of like, you know, being scrappy in the early days to identify what is that channel for you that there is arbitrage opportunity in. And then as you identify that, you're bringing in specialists to not only become scrappy, but best in class in that and building your moat if you're building, you know. It just seems to me 
just just looking at these companies that they have won by mm-hmm. being incredible at one of the one of these channels. I would I would totally agree with that, and I think that gets back to our point earlier, though, of kind of like you know being scrappy in the early days to identify what is that channel for you that there is arbitrage opportunity in, and then as you identify that you're bringing in specialists to not only become scrappy, but best in class in that and building your moat. If you're building, you know, booking.com and, and it's, you know, paid search, uh, if it's SEO for nerd wallet, if it's kind of podcast for zip recruiter, whatever channel you want to choose. And, you know, eventually you become the absolute expert in that. And I think that curve is an interesting area. Like, are you continuing to get new wins in that channel? If so, that may be your lead channel. If not, you know, you still have to be looking scrappily around because maybe you need to find a new channel to continue to get gains if your one channel you're in is tapping out. Yeah. Do you guys have any frameworks on, on the exploration phase? Because, you know, I've, I've used like an 80-20 approach, but I'm not quite sure if that's like the best approach where it's like, oh, 80% of your time should be spent on channels are currently working and then 20% maybe on exploration continuous. It's either time or money, you know, it depends on how you're thinking about it. But I wonder how you guys have thought about this problem before. It's like, okay, you want to diversify a little bit, but how much effort should you spend on the, on the exploration after you figured out one of these channels? Uh, I think it uh, depends on the size of your team and the stage of the maturity of the company. Uh, so in the early days at, at Uber, everyone was trying to find new channels, right? It, it was just, we only have two. Uh, and so we're try- constantly seeing like what else was out there. And, and once we had found like, oh, okay, these are you know two that we definitely know work. And we started to hire in experts in each of these fields. Like I was actually, I mentioned I was one of the more generalist early employees. I actually started a new channel team that just only did new channel. And it was only like me and one other person. So there are two people on the, two people yeah. on the team. Um, but it was, uh, we just constantly were testing new channels. Because uh, a lot of these new channels, like one example was like affiliates. You it requires a heavy lift to get off the ground. Uh, like you don't want someone spending 20% of their time like trying to run an affiliate marketing campaign because then you could actually run into a lot of issues. And so like, we actually had this dedicated, dedic- two dedicated people. And then we actually had a framework of this is going to be our budget for new channel tests. This is our metric for success. This is where we track um, the like our goals. And and at one, like one point after X number of weeks, we just make a go, no go decision. And then we were able to like cycle through them. And so a lot of them didn't work, but one or two hit and those like became large channels. And we actually hired in like a person to like oversee it full time. Yeah. I think that that framework is interesting. And I, I, I love your point, Amy, around it. Some of these channels do take a heavy lift, right? So for example, like how long is that testing window? Like a policy genius podcast was a great channel for us, but if, if we had done three podcast tests and taken the read on the CPAs after three of them, we would have been like, oh, this channel doesn't work that well. But it does take a lot of you know, iteration around that. And you know, another one of that was, you know, say, influencers, right? Like there was one, one of my friends is CMO at, at a direct-to-consumer company, and you know, they had three people staffed against influencers, right? And so I'd, I'd ask him, so I'm like, oh, we tried influencers and it didn't work. He's like, well, how long could you try it for? And I was like, oh, I don't know, like a one or two month test. He's like, no, we did it for six months. We had to really get a sense of, you know, who are the influencers? And then we had the influencers refer other influencers and those were great audiences for us to find. But it wasn't just through just one little test. You've got to really take a run at it and ensure that the first three, four, five iterations, okay, great, maybe you've uncovered something there. And there's got to be early indicators of that, of course. You can't just waste money. But I think I've seen a lot of um, startups take a run at a channel, do it lightly, and then be like, oh, this channel doesn't work. 
So there is that balancing point between Mm -hmm. really validating, did you take a solid run at it? And it's okay if it didn't work, but you want to make sure you've got a solid read on the test. Not, oh, maybe uh, it could have worked, but we didn't execute it properly. We didn't run it long enough. Yeah, there's so much execution risk with these, like all the channels, like literally every channel, there's execution risk because they're just hard to crack. One thing that comes up to this is basically that you may be wasting time doing all this exploration if you don't have product market fit. Because no matter what you do, the channel is not going to open up for you. This is a tough one because I think uh, it it takes us to uh, the other topic, which is uh, growth in the early days has so much to do with product. Actually figuring out what part of the market will make sense for this specific product that you're building. Or like maybe your messaging is completely different. The tech can be applied to a whole different slew of markets that you hadn't even thought of in the beginning. Do you guys think that that's like the founder's job, the product manager's job in the early days? Or do you think like a head of growth can come in and just also own part of that? Like, how do you, how do you think about that? I have my own opinion on this, but I'm curious what you guys think. I think it's, I think it's everybody's job. You know, you should be watching your NPS and, you know, as a marketer or growth, growth person, you want to be promoting products that people like, right? And so there's no sense in spending a ton of money on a product if you're bringing in, you know, users that either don't end up buying the product because they fall off in the conversion cycle or they buy and then they churn quickly or you've got a low referral rating or a low NPS score, right? At that stage, you've got to be like, all right, does it, you've probably got a leaky bucket. Should you just pour more gasoline into it? Or should you try and actually improve the product, improve the product market fit, get it in front of consumers who actually like it? And I think you know, there's a bunch of people in the company that can identify that. But as a growth individual, your job is to drive revenue, right? It's not just traffic. It's not just you know, awareness. And you know, to drive revenue, you've got to get people to buy the product and hopefully refer it and bring in some other people to buy it. I think the ownership should sit with anyone in that mix, but definitely with the growth folks. Mm-hmm. And I would say like for the early, and yeah, I was a growth person, but I, I would say that in the early stages, you might not want to hire someone dedicated to growth until you have some sort of repeatability demonstrated like with the product. And I, the way I like to think about it is I do like this like reality, like gut check thing of like, I think some people are like, okay, so like CAC is like a hundred dollars. Like, how do we feel about that? How can we decrease? And like, what does that mean? If CAC is a hundred dollars, what's your like CPM? How many humans are seeing your ad and like not clicking on it and not converting? If you actually look at those numbers and you're like, Hmm, I think there might be an issue here. We're like of the hundred people that land on our, our site, only one person actually signs up. Like, why is that? What happened to those 99 people? Like, do they, and, and really like getting to the bottom of that, either by just calling people up, doing user research, spending time with their customers and like understanding all, here are all the reasons that I didn't sign up. And it's like, oh, like some of those are product issues. Like maybe we should go back to the drawing board and like with the product mm-hmm. and edge team and figure it out. And same with retention, right? It's, you know, a hundred people did want, like bought one thing on my platform and then they never came back again. Why? <laughs> Why didn't they come back? And, and like, it, until you can get to the bottom of those like core questions around product mm-hmm. market fit, then you, you don't, you probably don't want to like pour a ton of gas mm-hmm. on the fire. But like, once you have something that you are like, okay, I think that people like this and I think that they will continue to use it, then I think it, it makes sense to, to bring in growth. And back yeah, to that point of, re- of referrals, right? Like, are you, mm-hmm. you've tried this product. Are you willing to recommend it to somebody else or not, right? And to doing some qual on, have you ever recommended this product? Why not, 
right? If they're not willing to recommend it to a friend, like that, that's a problem with the product you've got, right? Mm-hmm. Or you've got the wrong user in or both. And I think, again, that gets back to that piece of referrals is such a valuable bit of information from a business trajectory perspective. Because on Uber's point, if everyone's referring their friends, they're doing a lot of that work for you, but it speaks to how satisfied they were with the product and their willingness to put their own social capital on the line to bring their friends in. Yeah, it's, what's interesting is... Um... So I, I agree with you guys. There, there's a question here, I think, uh, that um, would be a good wrap-up on this topic. But I think both of you have touched on the process that you go through. Of, okay, we're going to attempt to unlock a channel. We're going to spend an, a, a reasonable amount of time on, and money on, on the channel. What I've actually realized is there's not a lot of written work about how to run this process. Do you, ha- do you have people that you follow on this where you just respect how they're talking about how to run a growth process? For me, it was discovered by being in enough startups. Where I'm like, oh yeah, there's like this like thing everyone's doing, and there is like basically some you know videos you can maybe watch on YouTube and and see people talking about it, but there's no like cohesive. Here is like the model for growth. Maybe maybe Brian Balfour's stuff from the old days, but I'd love to hear what you guys where you guys learned this stuff, or mm-hmm. if you just had to solve on the job. Yeah, my side, I think it's more in the job, right? Because the, the companies are really different, right? Like even even within you know my portfolio, I, I work only with fintech companies, but I couldn't say every single company should have a 20% allocated budget to testing and 80% should be business as usual tested channels. That might apply for a scale-up that's in Series C or Series D, but sure as heck, to Amy's point, doesn't apply to a Series A or a seed stage where it should be maybe 80% experimentation. And I think you know there are nuances according to stage and then the type of company you've got, but you've got to be willing to test these pieces. Like I, I always think it's critical to have at least some share you know, especially in a scale-up or a tech mode that is allocated to experimentation. My heuristic, typically similar to yours, I think Nima, is 80% what you know and 20% testing as you're you know, scaling from Series C to Series D, less so in the earlier stages. But that's, that's my take. I have uh, two frameworks that I used to, when, I, when I was leading the new channel team. And one of them was just like, talk to your customers, like really understand your customers and everything about them. Like, how do they spend their mornings? Like, where do they hang out with their friends? Like, what apps do they use? Like, how old are they? Like, how do they like to spend time with their family? All these kinds of things. And and once you like get that sort of understanding of your customers, then you're like, oh, my customers are 14 to 24 and they love TikTok, right? They love making videos. They like, th- these are the surfaces that they spend a lot of time on. Like they hang out at school after with their friends and, and like they get right from their parents and just so as a, and then you can I kind of like triangulate oh okay like if TikTok Snap and Stories might be good channels because these are places that they already are and this is like Uber you heard from the drivers that they like commonly peruse the gigs portion of Craigslist to find jobs they con they like they spend a lot of time driving around in their car radio might be a good uh, channel for for that and and just really deeply understanding that and oh what kinds of neighborhoods do they live in. Maybe we can do some out of home in those neighborhoods, like all of the, like trying to meet the customer where they are. And then the other thing is like trying to be as early on new tech platforms as possible. And in that, in this scenario, it's like really hard to find writing on it because like the writing will just be outdated really quickly, right? Like mm. what are the new emerging platforms? You mentioned Clubhouse, the new emerging platform. TikTok obviously is huge now. Are people, more people on mobile? What are these like massive like kind of trends? And can you get into an alpha test 
to be the first advertiser mm-hmm. on that platform. That was a huge strategy at Uber. Like we like convinced Snap to let us be an alpha tester on on some of their ads, and they yeah, perform really it. well because it's not it's not competitive, right? You're one of and and I think it's easier when you do have a brand associated with you and you're like a like an Uber or an Airbnb or Dropbox or something. But even the smaller startup, you know, maybe you're friends with someone who works at TikTok or something and they can get you in on the the new app install ads or something. It's funny. It is so important. Like we, because we spend so much on Facebook, we get access to these like sort of new ad units and like they're the best part of what we do because we spend like millions and millions a month as a small startup, you don't get access to that unless you work with us. <laughs> so then we can like blow you up on that one ad unit. It's an important one. I think Andrew Chen wrote about this. Actually, he called it the laws of shitty click-throughs. Uh, the law of shitty click-throughs. I, if you, if you actually search that, you, yeah. you'll find his old article on this. And, um, is basically the, the concept is, as, as, as Amy mentioned, right? There is a um, new, new platform. There's not a lot of bidders in there. So CPMs are cheap. And then more bidders get in there, CPMs balloon up. So then your CAC just shoots up and it no longer makes sense. So it, it, it then follows that you should be the first as, or as early as possible in, in, in a bidding war uh, mm-hmm. for, for people's attention. And the latest one I like, we've tested a bunch recently is next door actually, um, mm. which has been a weirder one and it works for some companies and it definitely does not work for some companies, but they're super early stage. Like their, their interface needs a lot of love, but it's an interesting one right now where a ton of our clients are testing, for instance, other than TikTok and mm-hmm. uh, Clubhouse doesn't have ads yet. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting, you know, theory around like, like, we found the same thing, you know, working at policy genius or even across our portfolio is getting in front of that audience cheaper. Right. And where you find that lower CPMs is imperfect channels, right? That's where ch- channel arbitrage exists, right? The second that I see like an IBM or a BMW advertising on a channel, it's over, right? The yeah. fact that they could podcast would be an example, right? So at Policy Genius, we'd be trying to get on a lot of podcasts, but one of the big ones was the daily, right? And like, you take a look at who advertised on the daily, Coca-Cola, IBM, these huge car companies, and if you're trying to outbid them from a CPM basis, it's not going to work, right? Where mm-hmm. you've got to be is areas that are hard to track, hard to scale, because the bigger brands who are working with agencies or these sorts of things won't find that attractive. They're like, oh, we don't know how to track it. We don't know how to validate it. That's where the channel arbitrage opportunity exists or in a beta where not everybody can access the inventory. So I think thinking about getting in front of your customers cheaper in a channel that has lower CPMs is usually a way for, for arbitrage. Yeah. And you know what was interesting about this for a while? And I think both of you were part of that wave for a little bit uh, where paid was just not the thing because Facebook and all these different apps still had real ways you could organically grow on there. And there was like a slew of startups. I think Airbnb and then were part of this, this sort of stage, even Dropbox in, in many ways where organic growth was a thing. I think growth hacking came around because that was possible where you could mm-hmm. go on one of these platforms and then figure something out such that then people will just share your stuff a lot. Uh, and there's all these startups, that mm-hmm. some of them failed, some of them succeeded that came about. Do you think that that's going to come back at all? I feel, I feel like it's not, but I, I, I wonder how you guys think about now, now that the platforms have just fundamentally changed. So then you have to pay for every impression and using the network. I think one of the things I've heard a lot is the sophistication of these platforms through AI is just getting so much more robust, right? And so there used to be a lot of hackability in paid search in mm-hmm. Facebook, where if you were into the channels, you know, and you were up at 5am posting on Craigslist, like, there was a lot of these abilities to, to hack into growth. 
I think with AI, a lot of that's being removed. And I think that the pendulum is shifting back into the creative space. And there's opportunity now to differentiate with kind of, you know, dynamic creative, rapid creative, native creative, right? Where kind of you got folks that look like they're, you know, it's probably an ad, but it's actually an influencer who was paid to speak about a product organically, business insider, you know, where it's like like a mix of like, it's kind of news, but it's like kind of advertorials. You know, these sort of creative executions, I think, are now a little bit more where a lot of the opportunity sits because a lot of the hacky, like get in front of the right audience on some of these established platforms, I think has been removed because of the sophistication of the platform. I definitely feel that that's probably the case on like Facebook and Google, which are the two dominant, like they're, they're way more dominant than when I was a growth marketer today. But I think there is still opportunity to do creative things on like the newer platforms that are not as sophisticated with their ad models. I think TikTok is one of them. They just have so many impressions that like you can like actually hack some of their organic loops and their challenges if you know how to do it the right way. Like I've had a couple portfolios find just a ton portfolio companies like find a ton of success on TikTok. They don't exactly know why they're going viral, but like if something does go go viral, that's like millions of impressions, right? For very little cost. So I think there's like a lot of like interesting opportunities there, but you you have to be willing to like really get into it and, and have to try a lot of stuff that doesn't work. And there was a question in the chat earlier about like, what are some referral channels that for folks that don't have a ton of venture funding? And I think that there's a lot of like creative, very creative ways that you can get people to talk about your brand, get something out of it without necessarily having to spend. And Dropbox was one of my favorites. When I was when I was in college, Dropbox was like just getting started. And they had this thing where if you installed Dropbox, if you had your friend installed Dropbox on another computer, you got like some free storage. And like <laughs> my friends and I, uh, one friend in particular, all of the like public school library computers, she just installed Dropbox on like all of them. <laughs> but it was like kind of interesting. It's like you do... Like now the next person that's going to go on that computer is going to see Dropbox uh, and potentially like use it. And she like probably installed Dropbox on like dozens of computers. I mean, it's interesting. I think I just get back to the get creative Mm -hmm. with the rewards, right? And SoFi was an interesting one. There was a period of time when, you know, they used to give out these t-shirts and everyone wear them to the gyms, right? And it was kind of like a comfy shirt that you wear to the gym, but you're like, oh, like you're doing free branding for them. The t-shirt, I don't know, what did that cost? $5 for them, mm-hmm. maybe shipping and a bit more, but it's not that expensive, but it's a way to get your referring and these sorts of things. So you can get creative with the referrals and not have to break the bank on it. The best use cases are giving your product away for free, right? Like space on Dropbox doesn't cost a ton of money. Fractional shares, maybe they cost a couple bucks but they sound pretty cool. Like, oh, I'm giving you a fractional share of Apple. Maybe it's $10, but it still sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I think that the referral thing in general seems like it it sounds like you're wasting money, but if you have it right, then you should be making money almost immediately. I mean, of course, the the context of Dropbox and Uber was that they had so much cash (laughs) that they could do whatever the hell they wanted, right? But I do think there's a sustainable way to build build that program, right? Uh, there was another question in, in here, and I actually think that's a good one to think about a little bit, especially because you've been on the investor side, is how, how to think about CAC. Do you guys um, think that you, the headcount of the people that are working on marketing should be included, for instance, in CAC? Or do you think it's just the pure numbers you're looking at? Last click, paid on Facebook, this is it. Like, How, how sophisticated, essentially, do you, do you think people or companies should be when they're trying to calculate these numbers? 
That's a, that's a really good question because I know mm-hmm. like I've seen companies do everything. Like the mm-hmm. like you kind of really have to get into it. But I would say like one number that is just useful to think about as, from the investor's perspective is like what's just the aggregate spent on all sales and marketing, including headcount, including media, including everything over the aggregate new signups. So like organic, everything, just all the new signups. And so like, mm-hmm. so you kind of get that like, oh, generally this is how much it costs to grow. And I think that that, that kind of eliminates the head, like sort of headache that's associated with like attribution models and, and everything like that. And because and from the investor's perspective, they're, we're just trying to understand like, oh, how much will it cost to grow? How much did it cost to grow up until now? If we invest X dollars, like how many new so you uh, think basically like blended cac including salaries is an interesting one to look at the problem with that is it just looks bad very bad in the early stages um, Mm -hmm. of a company like do do you think like investors don't expect that to be as nice and clean do you think like you're okay with it being feeling a little bit not performant in the early days because you probably like over higher than some parts of the organization you haven't fully figured out how to make your organization efficient on that front yet? Like, do you think that makes it harder for the founders to raise money? I, I, I think, know, I, think it, oh, I was going to say, I think in the early days, I don't think folks are looking at your CAC and they go, are you profitable? Like they know what stage you're at. They mm-hmm. know that you probably need to overhire. You're investing in tech, you're investing in marketing in the early days. And, you know, they're looking to the path to profitability, but they're not expecting a series A to be as efficient from a CAC perspective as you would at a series C, right? And I think, um, you know, so they would know that. If you're including headcount and your business that scales and you need to add headcount to convert and drive revenue, that may warrant you actually putting that in CAC versus if it's a completely SaaS company and it's more digital. My take as well, I think, is, you know, it depends back on the business, right? So it's like, if you're including headcount and your business that scales and you need to add headcount to convert and drive revenue... That may warrant you actually putting that in CAC versus if it's a completely SaaS company and it's more digital. There are different factors that would weigh in. I saw that in the comments, there's a comment around you know retail space being rolled into CAC and, and in some of the retail startups. Maybe that is if you've got a heavy retail footprint, that may be a more you know pertinent factor to include in your CAC versus a completely e-commerce company that doesn't have retail, right? Or they just have mm-hmm. their office space. So I think for me, I, I try to think about it like, what elements are variable cost that you're going to actually continue to incur as you scale? That should be in CAC. And I think things that are just kind of more fixed or flat or investment, that, that I would want to not include because I want to get a sense of what is the you know, incremental value? What do you, you spend a dollar incrementally to bring in new customers? What are you getting out of that? I'm very interested in looking at that trajectory. Yeah, that makes sense because even in retail... We, when I was at Frank and Oak, we thought of it as as marketing spend when we when we got real estate because it was free impressions, right? Or like it would have been free impressions if we hadn't included it. And it also followed that whenever we were launching a store, this the, the sort of click through rates would increase in that market on our ads. So it was just so obvious that this is totally like a marketing play. All we have to do is just launch more stores, and that's kind of what Warby and and Casper did for a while. It's just mm-hmm. like brought down their CAC a little bit, right? It's it's a harder one. I think for B2B, for me at least, when we talk to companies, I expect them to have the sales staff and the marketing staff baked in there because it's such a big part of closing mm-hmm. the customers. Mm-hmm. It's literally like a part of your funnel. Mm-hmm. So uh, and your funnel 
is variable, unfortunately, in that scenario, because you have to scale up your sales staff and your marketing yep. team to continue doing the work. Um, but for B2C, maybe it's a lot more clear where, okay, yeah, dollar in, dollar out. It's much more obvious. Yeah. And, and I get it back to like what, what, is, what is required to generate the revenue on the incremental sale. And that, mm-hmm. that can be, and it's your point, like in B2B, if you're bringing in these leads, but you don't have the sales folks to actually convert it, that's a variable cost, right? But if you're on a SaaS platform, you're just bringing in incremental and everyone can convert directly online. You don't need that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. For us, like the, the way I like to think a lot about CAC is, and I'd love to hear, hear what you guys think about this because we, we basically will run ads on like these different channels, right? And then we'll look at CAC on a per channel basis a lot. But then when you start scaling up after a certain point, you can't really trust the networks anymore to tell you who they're getting because there's going to be overlap in the audiences and stuff. Do you believe in like pure last click attribution essentially, or do you think there should be more complex models that people should build? for their startups, especially the later stages. I'd love to hear how you guys thought about that in the past. Yeah, I think there's like two that are that come to mind. The first is if you're doing any sort of offline, like TV, radio, you can't just last click just doesn't work. But like those are actually can be very performant channels. And like once the digital stuff is like saturated, uh, I think it can you know, lift all, if you're doing like some like sort of TV and radio and sort of out of home, it can actually lift the performance of all of your channels. So actually trying to figure out how to attribute uh, all of that is complicated, but really important because otherwise you would never do it, but it clearly works. And, and then the other thing is like, I think it's super important early on to think about marginal CAC and that's not easy to right? but it, you can do just like small attribution tests. I put in extra incremental amounts of dollars, like how many additional people signed up. And I think it's mind blowing for some people. Like the first time you do it, you're like, I just put in $10,000 and I only got two additional signups from this yeah. channel. And, and I think oh, we did it in Uber once and we were like, oh my God, like we should just give this person a car. You know what I mean? Like it gets yeah. that expensive, but it, especially if you're doing a lot of volume, it sometimes hides itself within the aggregate blended numbers. So yes, like sometimes you want to share the blended numbers with the investors just to be easy and like give them the holistic, like end to end view of the business. This is our gross margin. This is our EBITDA margin. But like when you're thinking about like the changes that you make, really think about the marginal dollars you're putting in the system. And it's like if I have an extra $10,000, do I put it into Facebook? Do I put it into this new channel? Do I put it into our referrals engine? Do I put it into like text, text messages for existing users and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think oh, on the attribution, yeah. I was just saying on the attribution front, like that's, that's the age old question that we continue to try and get better at, right? And you will never... By the time I left Policy Genius, I was on you know V10 of our attribution model in three years, right? And the reason why is you're continuing to take new information, testing new channels, and some of them you can track quantitatively very easily, digitally, others you can't, right? And so how do you think about incorporating this spend, doing lift testing in certain geographic markets as a way to do that? Or you know, how do you really track the impact of a subway campaign, right? Like this is an example, like at Policy Genius... We were among all the other startups in New York City who does these, you know, brand takeover, these trend, these takeovers, and you see a huge lift in your awareness and knowledge of the business. As soon as you do that, it's kind of almost like a pre and post of, of doing that in terms of awareness in the market. 
well, how do you quantitatively track that? You know, there's a big lift in the month that we did that. Is all of that attributed to Subway? And, you know, for life insurance, we couldn't put it on sale. So we couldn't put like 20% off life insurance this month. So there's no, there's no, there's no code that we could attach to that. So you got to get creative with how you're attributing that volume of, you know, do you take a look at incremental search traffic? Do you look at the incremental lift in this market versus other markets? Those sort of pieces. And I think those are elements you need to look at because that gets back to our comment earlier about channel arbitrage. The harder it is to track some of these things, there are opportunities for folks who are willing to lean in and try that versus, oh, it's too hard to track. We're not going to do it. So it's something to think through, I think, and revisit quite frequently in terms of attribution modeling. It's funny what you mentioned around this. So two things came out of this for me, which one is a common thought where I think really growth people tend to be just really good capital allocators in general. That seems to be what the job becomes after a certain extent where you're just making budget decisions at that point. And, and then that, at that point, then you're like, what, what numbers am I looking at? And then how smart you are with looking at the numbers tends to be the reason you win. But the other thing is, and it seems like you both have experience here, on the idea of shared experience when it comes to advertising. Because the, this industry that we, we've been a part of, before Facebook and Google and these sort of very clear dollars in, dollars out sort of channels existed, performance marketing was like a small niche. People couldn't really do what, what they, they're capable of doing now. But there was this concept in advertising where if you had like a Super Bowl ad, everyone was talking about your brand afterwards. because everyone had watched the Super Bowl. Or if you had an ad in the, I don't know, in, in the between Friends, everyone was talking about the day after because everyone was watching Friends, right? So that doesn't exist anymore as much because media is so disjointed now. It's not four channels where all families in your, in your city are watching the same thing at eight o'clock anymore. That's become less and less of a thing. But when you are able to get get to a point where you can create a shared experience moment, all your other channels become more performant all of a sudden. So the Subway ad is a great example of that. You've done it quite a few times for our clients. Well, they'll run a Subway ad and then our click-through rates will go up that whole month because everyone's talking about the ads and, and it creates this sort of like old school way of like brand advertising. And then it, it ends up doing, creating like a lever for our paid and performance work, which is very interesting combining it together. I think an interesting note on that too is, is you know, um, and this is what gets so interesting around how do you value brand marketing, right? And performance marketing is one area and you're taking a look at that. You can track it. One dollar in, this is what you get out. But, you know, as an example, is it easier because you've le- leaned in and done some brand to recruit talent, right? Like there was a, there was a moment where, you know, back at Policy Genius before we did our first Subway campaign, I'd go to these growth meetings and I'd be like, oh, I work at Policy Genius. They're like, what is that? What are you talking about? Like, tell it, you, you spent a minute explaining what the business was before you even got into what's going on. Following that, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I totally saw the ad. It was super cool. You did the poetry on the subway. And, like, what is the, the value of that in terms of conversion for getting in front of people? And, you know, we would do a ton of consumer research at Policy Genius, obviously. And speaking of folks in New York, you know, I would often ask folks when we we're leading the, our discussion groups, like, how did you hear about us? Nine out of 10 people in New York would say your subway ad. Whether that was you know the only thing they'd heard of is, but they would mention that. What value is that? Nine out of ten in a qualitative kind of setting, mm-hmm. and you know as you go out to these these pieces, so there there are intangibles that are attached to really strong execution in a channel that may not be directly trackable. But what value does that bring to the business? Yeah, that's a hard one to figure out because like we we think about this a lot. Where in in the context of policy genius, maybe it would have been like somewhat easy 
to like attribute and, and do like market differences where you're like maybe not advertising the same way in market A versus market B. Some companies are so global that this is just not possible. They're just pure software. So like the location won't matter. Like they might see an ad and they live in California and then sign up or buy something in New York from like a designer in New York. So there's like all these complexities in marketplaces that we work with. Uh, and it's it's a topic that is very hard to nail, I think. There's just not a lot of written work around how to think about the different sort of aspects of attribution and should you like do first or last or do partial. And it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys kind of like solve for whatever you're you were doing at the time because like it was unique to your business. So here's like what I'm going to think about how to nail it for my business. Does that sound right? I would say attribution is definitely like an 80-20 rule kind of a thing where like 20% of the work like is like 80% of the value. We went into like an attribution black hole. So much time, so much, so many resources, and like not that much help at the end. And it's just, it's just like so complicated. And it's like, do you really want to like employ data science resources to like really do this, or like put data science resources on something like search pricing? It's just the trade offs are get to be pretty steep with the amount of effort that you really have to put in. One other thing, though, that you mentioned the shared experience uh, of like that Super Bowl ad. I want to like bring that back to Jonathan's point earlier about content. I think like content and like virality now is that shared experience. Like that example of the TikTok video of the cran raspberry juice and dog face. (laughs) Yeah. Like everyone watched that, right? It's like hundreds of millions of people probably Mm -hmm. have watched that. And maybe they got cravings for cranberry juice afterwards. But I think there's some really cool things that you can do with content. Just thinking back to the my days at Uber and like with some of the portfolio companies that uh, I've worked with at Sequoia, like when Uber put Uber Kittens was like just so viral of a moment, right? And it was like very cheap to do. Like I think it was a woman named Jen in the Seattle office came up with the idea with the local like uh, SBCA like cat adoption and just like, hey, like why don't we just take some of these kittens, put them in cars and hopefully they get adopted. But the amount of virality that that generated and like the free ice cream thing uh, was also just like, super huge if you can create these moments of like surprise and delight then they and it, they can generate so many just free impressions kind of akin to the something that everyone is talking about like a super bowl ad yeah i mean i feel like it's a very hard hard thing to do i yeah. think it's and this is it goes back to what jonathan was mentioning earlier i think that the, our world the world of marketing growth is turning more and more towards creativity in general mm-hmm. uh because there was a point where it was about basically being a day trader on these platforms and then finding all the different weird bugs. And that's how you want at Facebook and Google and all these things. And then now because of the AI, it's becoming essentially who, who has the better creative and the better product. And you're just going to win because of that. I do love that about the industry, that the shift that's happening. Because there was a point where I was feeling quite sad about where, where the world is going, where it's just like all these numbers and you just have to like win at at bidding on the right auctions and that's how you're going to grow brands and it's has nothing to do with the merit and the beauty and the creativity and the products they built it's definitely shifting again but what you just described sounds way harder to nail of like creating an experience that's going to blow up in a way that millions of people will 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 watch at the same time and have a shared experience very hard to playbook that and to yeah scale that from company to company yeah, the, num- the number of agency briefings I'm sure that agencies have been like, we want to create a viral ad. We want it to go viral. Like that's our that's our career that's our creative brief. It's like, okay, got it. 
aspirational. Crazy, yeah. Cool. I think we don't have to go all the way to the end. This seems like a really good ending to it. It's just like a nice positive note of where the industry is going. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy and Jonathan, for doing this. This is really fun. We just talk about marketing with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to our show. Get our episodes as soon as they're released. Just tap that follow or subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, if you want to join our live discussions where you can ask us questions as we record, sign up at paramel.com slash hypergrowth podcast. We'll see you on the next episode on the hypergrowth experience.